This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Colon cancer is the second leading cancer killer in men and women in the United States. One in 20 will develop colon cancer during their lifetime, and it's predicted that over 140,000 new cases will be found in 2019. Colon cancer screening is effective, and colon cancer is preventable. According to the American Cancer Society, colon cancer incidence has declined as a result of screening. Yet it's estimated that one in three adults from age 50 to 75 years have never had screening for colon cancer. Today's topic is colon cancer screening, and our guest is Dr. John Kissel, a gastroenterologist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Welcome, John. Daryl, thank you for having me. Well, let's start by talking about the patients who should be screened for colon cancer. Who, when, when should this start happening? So there is broad agreement uh, and endorsement by multiple guidelines that virtually all adults in the United States who are at average risk for colorectal cancer should start screening at age 50. And that recommendation uh, is uh, supported by guidelines from the United States Preventative Services Task Force, uh, the Multi-Society Task Force for uh, Colorectal Cancer Screening, which includes uh, the American Gastroenterology Association and the American College of Gastroenterology. There are uh, guidelines that were issued uh, about a year ago from the American Cancer Society that suggested that based on some modeling studies and, and computer simulation, that there would be benefit to starting screening as early as age 45, even in the general population. That recommendation has been met with some controversy. I think the benefits are clear, but there may be substantial additional costs, and there are some risks associated with screening. And so there's been a, a general call to uh, develop evidence uh, in support of changing or keeping the current guideline. There are um, some uh, uh, suggestions from, from other societies that we could start screening African-Americans as early as age 45. Um, but in general, I think there's broad consensus on age 50. Uh, patients who are younger than age 50 and interested in starting screening early should talk with their doctor, and they should also probably talk with their insurance company to make sure that that test would get covered. Mm -hmm. So that's the recommendations for average risk individuals. How about those who may have a family history of colon cancer or a family history of colon polyps? Do they need to have different recommendations? Yes. Uh, now, the evidence supporting those recommendations is, uh, is, is low quality, but, and there, there are recommendations from uh, guidelines, especially the Multi-Society Task Force document from 2017, uh, that suggests that uh, patients who have a first-degree relative with colorectal cancer uh, who was younger than uh, age 60 or younger when they, when they had that diagnosis, or an advanced adenoma, that would be uh, a large polyp, uh, one that contained villus or high-grade architecture. Uh, so first-degree relatives of patients with young-onset colon cancer or young-onset advanced adenoma, defined by age 60, uh, should start colon cancer screening at age 40 or 10 years before their relative was diagnosed, whichever uh, comes first. And uh, it's specifically recommended that those individuals uh, be screened 
with colonoscopy instead of other uh, screening modalities and that they uh, would receive their screening tests more frequently, mm -hmm. as often as every five years. Uh, if you have a first-degree relative uh, age 60 or older uh, with colon cancer or advanced adenoma, the guidelines have suggested that they start screening at age 40 as well, but they can have any of the modalities and they can be screened at the standard intervals for each of those tests. So no modification to how often. So any change in recommendations for those who may have had like a grandparent? who has had uh, colon cancer? No, so uh, presently, if, if uh, you don't have a, uh, a genetic syndrome, and we can talk about that uh, later, um, a second degree relative, uh, a grandparent or a, a first cousin uh, or a, a, an uncle uh, or an aunt, th those individuals would not be believed to be at such increased risk that they would alter their screening pathway. Okay, all right. Well, who's at increased risk? for getting colon cancer? So um, there are a variety outside of, of family history, um, or rather within family history, there are, are patients who will be recognized to have a hereditary cancer syndrome. Uh, the most common of those uh, is a, a disease called Lynch syndrome, in which patients uh, lack uh, an, uh, one of four enzymes that repairs DNA damage during uh, that, that may occur as part of proofreading errors from uh, normal cell division. And uh, Lynch syndrome patients uh, can have a, a very high lifetime risk of colon cancer, upwards of 70%, depending on the mutation. Mm -hmm. uh, patients with uh, familial adenomatous polyposis, uh, they will form literally hundreds, if not thousands, of polyps that will carpet their colon uh, during their teenage or early adult years, and they have a virtually 100% lifetime risk of colon cancer. Uh, rare diseases such as uh, juvenile polyposis or Poitiers-Jagers, these are the, the syndromic cancers. And oftentimes those are picked up by a very careful and detailed family history. Uh, those are, for the most part, autosomal dominant diseases where you start recognizing uh, not just a first-degree relative like, you know, dad had colon cancer, but dad's dad had colon cancer uh, or uh, other cancers occurring in women uh, such as those of the, uh, the, the gynecologic tract um, would be a red flag for, for a provider to consider uh, Lynch syndrome or other hereditary mm -hmm. disorders. Uh, we are increasingly, when we find a person who has colon cancer, uh, it's also been recommended by USPSTF that we um, test that tumor um, for uh either protein expression or DNA proofreading errors that would suggest the presence or absence of Lynch syndrome. And now we're increasingly testing all colon cancers that way to identify families who may be missed by the, the older pedigree-based methods. Mm -hmm. um, so outside of those genetic mutations, uh, we also have uh, uh, over a million Americans in the United States who have inflammatory bowel disease, uh, Crohn's disease of the colon or ulcerative colitis, uh, for 10 or more years, place those patients at increased risk. Um, and that's actually the one of the clinic environments I practice in commonly. Um, so each of those patients with inflammatory bowel disease or these hereditary syndromes fall well outside of the standard colon cancer screening guidelines, and they now fall into a pathway that we call uh, surveillance because of their increased risk 
they're going to have a customized and often very intensive and, and frequently colonoscopy-based uh, testing regimen to try to spot those cancers early or remove high-risk polyps. Okay. Well, most of my patients are elderly, and I need to know when can I stop colon cancer screening. Is there some general guidelines for that? Absolutely. Um, USPSTF uh, broadly states that uh, screening should be stopped around age 75 unless there are extenuating circumstances. Um, there are also models um, that have been conducted uh, that, that try to demonstrate where a number needed to screen and a number needed to harm uh, intersect, meaning when are we actually doing our patients a disservice by uh, performing screening. Uh, a broad rule of thumb for an older patient would be that if they had comorbidities uh, that uh, you thought would, would reasonably shorten their lifespan, um, that you should be thinking about that. And, and typically a rule of thumb for a, a healthy patient would be, does this individual have at least 10 years of very high quality, high functioning life? Uh, so, you know, I think as we start to have... Um, conversations with patients who have COPD or heart failure, uh, poorly controlled diabetes, uh, chronic kidney disease, um, it's important for, for people to understand that um, the colon cancer screening uh, starts to carry increased risks, uh, both from sedation uh, and also the procedure itself. I've had patients look at me when I have this conversation and say, but are you now condemning me to to die of colon cancer, and, and the answer is no, I'm, I'm trying to avoid harming you uh, with, a, with a screening test uh, that could ultimately result in an, in an invasive exam. Sure. Well, the dilemma I often have is a patient who has had a history of colon polyps, adenomatous polyps, with the each colonoscopy, and they're now getting into their 80s. Uh, do I continue doing colonoscopies in this despite their advanced age? But given the fact that they've had polyps? I think, again, that needs to be a, an individualized conversation with the patients. Um, and again, uh, their age and their, especially their medical comorbidities, mm -hmm. more so than, than a numerical value for age, uh, begin to dominate the conversation. What do we know about how long it takes for a polyp to actually develop into a malignancy? So, you know, dogmatically, we've thought that uh, it takes about 10 years for a, a garden variety polyp to arise from uh, completely normal tissue to uh, get all the way to the point of an invasive cancer. But that uh, is essentially an empiric estimate. And uh, the answer, the realistic answer is that actually nobody really knows. Mm -hmm. um, we you know, are very interested when we're doing colonoscopy at making sure that we're finding large and small polyps because the success rate with which we find polyps uh, predicts how likely we are to prevent cancer. Um, but it's not a one-to-one -one relationship. Uh, for polyps that are smaller than uh, five millimeters in diameter, probably uh, five out of every six of those polyps might involute and go away. Mm -hmm. So I think... Um, Advocates of uh, non-invasive screening tests, uh, stool-based tests, um, are focusing uh, mainly on you know the the success with which we identify advanced or high-risk precancers uh, as uh, more likely to contribute to the prevention of the development of cancer over time. Right. Do all colon cancers develop from polyps? We think that they do. Uh, the question is uh, whether or not we're actually able to recognize uh, 
the polyp when we're when we're doing an exam. So um, we think in general that all lesions will proceed through some form of a, a, a dysplastic transformation uh, into what we would call broadly a polyp before proceeding to cancer. Um, but we'll probably need to talk a little bit about uh, the different types of polyps that can be found and uh, how likely we are during a screening program to find and, and, and remove those. Mm -hmm. um, we traditionally think of polyps as the, the adenoma uh, polyp, which in many person's mind's eye would, would be sort of a mushroom cap or a, a polyp on a stalk. However, we also know that probably a third of colon cancers arise from serrated uh, precursors, the, the sessile serrated polyp or sessile serrated adenoma, the, the antiquated name, um, are, are flat and they, they don't have a, a particularly large raised surface. Um, they can often be uh, obscured by poor prep um, and can be very, very difficult to see. As a community, we probably didn't even recognize these uh, until less than a decade ago uh, when uh, we started uh, reporting them uh, through our, our pathology group and actually started trying to devote attention to training endoscopists to recognizing these lesions. They're present predominantly on the, the right side of the colon uh, for the most part, um, and they probably account for about a third of all colon cancers. So do, do the sessile polyps have an increased propensity to turn into cancer, or is it just that they're often missed because they're harder to see? I think it's the latter. Yeah. I think the, um, the timeline with which the lesions would progress to cancer is probably similar for conventional adenomas. Uh, our post-polypectomy surveillance recommendations are similar in terms of the, the intervals for follow-up. Uh, based on features under the microscope. Um, but I think it's actually the case that we tend to miss these more often. Mm -hmm. uh, it's been shown in um, large uh, observational studies like uh, the Nishihara paper from the New England Journal in uh, 2014 that the majority of cancers that occur between colonoscopies, the, the so-called interval cancers, actually bear uh, molecular features of the serrated pathway. And so that makes the argument that they were missed. Mm -hmm. How about hyperplastic polyps? Do they carry any malignant potential? They really don't. Um, now, hyperplastic polyps, uh, we tend to think of as arising in the, uh, the rectum or sigmoid colon. And uh, when you have a, a pathology report that uh, tells you that you have a, a hyperplastic polyp uh, on the right side of the colon, typically you know proximal to the splenic flexure, uh, that might want to give you pause, uh, especially if the endoscopy report says that it was large and the endoscopist spent considerable time whacking it out mm -hmm. and have a, uh, photographic features that would otherwise support the diagnosis of uh, sessile serrated polyp. So they, the two may be um, subject to some inter-observer uh, uh, disagreement by pathologists, and uh, the, the clinical context is, is important. Mm -hmm. care for athletes and other active patients? Engage with sports medicine experts November 8th and 9th, 2019 at the Mayo Clinic Symposium on Sports Medicine. Participate in cutting-edge diagnostic and treatment strategies through live demonstrations and expert case presentations. To learn more, visit ce.mayo.edu slash sportsmedicine2019.
do we know how often polyps are missed? I imagine it must depend on the size and the degree of uh, flatness of them, but uh, what do we know about that? We don't, we don't really know. Um, there are some sobering statistics, though, that can kind of give us a, a sense of the, uh, an estimate of the magnitude of the problem. Um, anywhere from about three and a half to in some series as high as 13% of all colon cancers uh, are diagnosed in patients who reportedly had a normal screening colonoscopy less than 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. So that's, that, that's one starting point. Uh, we also know that there is uh, tremendous variation among individual colonoscopy uh, providers at their rates of finding these lesions in the colon. Uh, a, a famous series uh, out of uh, uh, Indiana University suggested that there may be as much as 18-fold difference between the top detector in their program and the bottom detector in their program. So that gives you some sense of the spectrum. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. What do we do with patients who are on chronic anticoagulation, say with warfarin or one of the newer products, and we know they've had polyps in the past, and so we're expecting some polyp resections. Can they remain on the anticoagulant? Do we need to bridge them? Excellent question, and one we encounter um, in practice virtually every day. Um, for the most part, our, our management of patients, um, when, when we're pursuing polypectomy, removal of a polyp, we're increasingly trying to lean towards the use of cold methods, meaning those that uh, do not require uh, electrocautery to be placed through um, a snare or other device to actually remove the polyp. Uh, and we're increasingly reserving the, that, that approach for lesions that are larger, typically 9, 10, or, or, or greater millimeters in diameter, uh, or ones that have a, a, a large broad-based stalk where there may be a feeding vessel. So we're increasingly trying to use cold approaches to try to prevent post-polypectomy bleeding. Um, and we would generally say that for a patient coming in for what we think would be a low-risk procedure, a, a diagnostic colonoscopy with biopsies, for instance, uh, a, an upper endoscopy with biopsies, we generally, as long as patients on medicines like warfarin are in the therapeutic range, uh, we would actually not stop them. Um, we are, are traditionally not stopping Plavix or, uh, or the newer uh, thrombin inhibitors uh, either, uh, unless we anticipate that there's going to be a high-risk intervention. So dilating a stricture, uh, using a, a needle knife or a cannulating um, the, uh, the biliary tree, uh, placing a peg tube, and then the use of, of hot techniques for polypectomy, those would be good indications to have the patient uh, off their medicine mm -hmm. uh, during the time of the procedure. Right. And there we typically uh, insist on an INR of one and a half or less. Let's talk about the current available screening tests. Uh, when I first started practice, basically, if we were going to screen for colon cancer, we did a rigid proctoscopic exam and a barium enema. Don't do those anymore. But what adequate tests are out there right now? So. Um, Currently, the um, endorsed uh, methods uh, where there's fairly broad consensus in guidelines, uh, colonoscopy is, uh, is still uh, probably the most commonly used screening method in the United States. Uh, fecal immunochemical testing, uh, which is a newer method of detecting occult blood. Uh, flexible sigmoidoscopy uh, is still endorsed, um, but uh, probably only visualizing about half the colon and so has some drawbacks there. 
Um, rigid proctoscopy is gone, uh, and barium enema is uh, is going. Uh, there are now increasingly uh, few uh, people uh, that that can interpret that, and it's it's never been a particularly sensitive test. Right. Um, the uh, newer modalities like CT uh, colonography are, are endorsed but um, may be difficult to get covered. And then probably the newest test is the, um, the, the multi-target stool DNA test, um, which is also available and broadly covered. Let's talk about that test. Who is a candidate for using the DNA-based uh, fecal, blood t- or fecal test? Sure. Presently, the um, the FDA labeling uh, is uh, approves the use of the test for average risk patients. So, uh, you know, we talked earlier about those with family history. So, those people who have first degree relatives uh, with a diagnosis of colon cancer in their fifties or younger, uh, or who have uh, advanced adenomas in young relatives, probably would not be good candidates. Uh, those genetic syndromes and inflammatory bowel disease patients that we talked about earlier would, would not be good, good candidates. Uh, or if you were personally known to have had um, prior polyps, especially advanced adenomas, that, that would also um, be an off-label use of that test if it were performed. Uh, so in general, uh, it's the big, the big uh, basket of everybody else. Mm-hmm. And uh, in particular, uh, the hope with introducing that test uh, into an already crowded field is that, as you mentioned earlier, we would try to encourage those uh, one in three adults in the United States um, who are not uh, participating uh, in regular screening to, uh, to come in from the cold, uh, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, that one in three number comes from survey data. If you actually do chart review and figure out whether or not people actually had the tests that they're reporting they had in the surveys, the answer comes down to probably one in two are not getting screened. Hmm. I've had this happen with one of my patients where I did the uh, fecal-based test and it came back positive. Had colonoscopy, it was negative. What do I do with that patient? Great question. One we're asked uh, every day. Keep in mind that the, uh, the multi-target stool DNA test was designed to have a false positive rate of 10%, uh, and that was calculated from people who had completely normal structural colonoscopy exams uh, in a very large study uh, prior to the pivotal trial that was uh, conducted for FDA review. Um, that number probably is holding up in, in routine clinical practice, so there will be a substantial number of people, um, now that over 2 million people have used that test, uh, who will be in the same position as the patient you describe, having a positive stool DNA test report uh, but a, a negative colonoscopy. The, the first thing that we need to do in that situation is to look at the colonoscopy report carefully. Is there clear documentation of intubation of the cecum? Uh, with a photograph of the appendiceal orifice or intubation of the terminal ileum? Uh, Is there good or excellent quality bowel prep to make sure that the endoscopist uh, was able to see uh, everything he needed to or she needed to? Um, And was the withdrawal time during the colonoscopy adequate? Uh, By definition, at least six minutes of inspection uh, of the colon uh, mucosa in order to be sure that every chance was offered to see any lesions. If all those criteria are met, uh, at that point, we uh, do not have any evidence to suggest that there is benefit from additional diagnostic testing. That information comes from a couple of sources. 
we have um, three published abstracts and a published manuscript showing that long-term follow-up of patients with uh, discordant uh, stool DNA and colonoscopy results are uh, no more likely to develop cancer than a person with a negative stool DNA test or and a negative colonoscopy. And that came out of uh, chart review and, and data from both our practice here at Mayo and also from other centers participating in the uh, average risk screening trial that got the test approved. Um, we have a manuscript under review uh, looking at that with uh, a total of more than, I believe, more than 200 apparent false positive exams in comparison to more than 1,000 uh, true negative exams. Hmm. Uh, the rates of cancer, whether that's uh, anywhere in the body, but particularly in, in areas that could uh, exfoliate biomarkers into the GI tract, such as the lungs um, or the hepatobiliary tree or, or the GI lumen, uh, those cancers not more likely between the two groups and uh, uh, both lower than what would be expected from the general population as estimated by the, um, the SEER project. Mm -hmm. What's on the horizon? We have screening tests now for colon cancer, but that's pretty much the only organ we screen for or screen test with. What else is out there that we may see in the future? Yeah, so I think um, the, uh, the research community is incredibly enthusiastic about uh, blood-based screening tests. So uh, the concept there would be a patient would go in for their annual exam and have a vial of, of blood drawn, and um, some of the same markers that we look for in the stool DNA test might also be present uh, in the bloodstream in patients who have an early stage cancer. And um, that would be one you know, very exciting approach. Um, the big challenge with this so-called liquid biopsy approach um, is that we need to know uh, in a human being who could have cancers uh, arising anywhere in their body uh, where that marker came from. And that's a, a major point of emphasis in, in our laboratory uh, to try to uh, develop liquid biopsy screening tests for common diseases such as colon cancer, uh, but also to be able to um, detect multiple cancers at the same time, uh, which would allow us to screen for diseases that we currently don't due to their lower uh, relative incidence in the population. An important example there would be pancreatic cancer, sure. which will become more fatal than colon cancer very soon, um, but is not screened for in the general population uh, because it's, quote unquote, too rare. Uh, the other uh, application for liquid biopsy type testing would be in uh, diseases that predispose to cancer, um, where patients, again, are in a surveillance pathway. Uh, one a particular example where there's a lot of research interest right now is in the detection of hepatocellular cancer in patients with cirrhosis, for instance. Uh, our current surveillance tools, ultrasound and alpha fetoprotein, probably only about 63% sensitive for curable stage HCC, the hepatocellular carcinoma, a, a liquid biopsy test uh, may be a big advantage over that performance. So that's um, in development uh, as we speak. Finally, one big question I have to ask, and I don't know if you're probably not going to have an answer to this, but why can't we get a prep that tastes decent? <laughs> that's probably the most common thing that people are reluctant to have colon cancer screening. I wish we could have something that tasted a little better. 
I think that's uh, universally in demand. We do have, you know, multiple new choices to use. Mm-hmm. There are um, uh, pharmaceutical companies that, that manufacture bowel preps that are um, trying to get newer and more palatable products uh, to market to give patients options. There are um, available on the, uh, the, the the Mayo Clinic website options for um, do-it-yourself preps uh, using essentially over-the-counter ingredients. Um, some are uh, specifically laxatives. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, others are um, anti-constipation medications, uh, but you could with um, uh, powdered uh, uh polyethylene uh, glycol and uh, sports drinks uh, and uh, stimulant laxatives actually put together your own prep cocktail, which is um, very effective. Uh, It's important to remember, too, when prepping for colonoscopy, uh, this is critical. It's not just taking and completing all of the prep. It's all of the dietary things Mm -hmm. that you do over the week before you actually take that prep that make a big difference, especially uh, removing uh, high fiber foods from your diet. Um, it, it's very easy to tell what someone's been eating uh, a week before their colonoscopy when we're in there. Uh, going on clear liquids for a prolonged period of time, two or even three full days before the procedure can also make a big difference, especially if you have a patient that's not done well with a prep before. And while the newer low volume preps are appealing to patients, if they've had trouble trouble prepping in the past, they probably should use a full four liter prep and almost certainly take that in split dosing regimen, meaning that they have uh, half of their prep the night before the procedure and the second half the morning of. We think that does a better job cleaning out the colon, and it may also make it easier for people to finish all of the prep if they're not trying to do it all at once. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, uh, that's been very helpful in our practice. We've been discussing colon cancer screening with Dr. John Kissel, a gastroenterologist at Mayo Clinic. John, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us. You're so welcome. Thank you for having me. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcast, please subscribe. Stay healthy and see you next week.